Well, this morning we're going to jump back into the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bible, please open them to 1 John. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 15 down to verse 17. And when you find it, please stand with me as we read from God's holy word. John writes and says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with expectation. God, I pray that you would speak very clearly to us through the Apostle John. I pray, Lord, that our affections for you would be Stimulated by your Holy Spirit. I pray that as we seek to understand temptation, Father, that we would have ready minds to understand, ready hearts to be able to follow passionately after Christ instead of after ourselves. Pray that you'd be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you all know, we've been gone for a couple of weeks, and that's one of those things that sometimes is helpful and necessary and enjoyable, uh, but there's always a certain point where it's ready, it's time to come home. Um, we went to Houston, Texas, and the heat that we've experienced this last, what, yesterday and the day, maybe the day before, uh, we went to Houston, Texas, and it was like 98 degrees. It was extremely hot, um, but it was a very enjoyable experience. After we finished in Houston, we went to the convention, uh, did some vacationing with other family members. Uh, we decided we would stop through New Orleans. And uh, we visited uh, the, the French Quarter, went to see some markets and different things and had some really good food. And then we came back through Nashville and saw some friends. And uh, all the while, it's one of those things when you go on a trip, all the while you're staying in different places. You're sleeping on different kinds of beds. Uh, and so those hotel beds, though sometimes they can be plush, there's just something a miss with them. I don't know if it's because other people have slept on them and it's just strange or what it is, but, but some of them are firm, some of them are, are too uh, smushy and your back hurts at the end of the night, but whatever it might be, there's several different beds that we've been sleeping on and as we got to Nashville, uh, we had the wonderful blessing of being able to see our friends from Nashville and the bed that I got to sleep on was the hardest bed I have ever laid upon. Literally. That's not even hyperbole. That, that's literal. It was like a board. It was amazing. And so that night, I began thinking, you know, I, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home. I miss my bed. And I thought, 
thought, you know, all of those times when my grandparents would say, yeah, we're not going to stay. We're just going to go home. I'm just like, well, why? Why are you going to go home? And they're saying, because, well, we just want to sleep in our own bed. Now I understand what they're talking about. I wanted to go home. I wanted to be in my own bed again. And oftentimes, what we do is, in this world, we, we pretend, or there's this an illusion as though that hard bed, that uncomfortable world, that fallenness, somehow that's home for us. And the, the lyrics from that old song, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. That ought to be the reality for each one of us. So that we don't become enamored with the world, with the things of this world, but we're instead, we're enamored with God. Because He is the one to whom we are going to. So as we look at this passage, I want us to focus in on the misplacement of our love many times. Whether it's to God or to the world. But as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's very important that we we see how John has organized the passage. He gives this command in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And he grounds that argument or that command in in two significant arguments. The first one, he he, he begins to talk about the incompatibility between what what we want. We want to love the world and we want to love God. Those two things don't happen together. They're opposites. They're contradictory. The second argument that he he suggests is that this world itself, nature itself, uh, all of the joys, all of the pleasures, all of the things that we enjoy in this world, all of these are temporary. They're transient. They are passing away, he says. And so John contrasts the transientness of the world with the eternal life of those who do the will of God. So he says, do not love the world because you can't love the world and love God at the same time. And the world itself is passing away. But in our time this morning, I want us to focus on that warning itself. That warning, do not love the world or the things of the world. And then I want us to examine how we as Christians, how we can understand temptation. And then... How we can direct our own love toward God. So that's, that's kind of the, the path that we're going to go down today. So let's focus our attention just for a little bit on the warning itself. Look at verse 15 again. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I don't know about you, but when you first read that, or maybe when you first heard me read that, there were several things in my mind that immediately popped up. Questions that just smacked me right in the face. And the first of these is this. What in the world, what in the world does John mean by world? What is this term? What does he mean by world? I mean, this is not some term that he's used in the early part of this letter. This is, this is a new term that John has introduced in the letter. But here in this short section, he uses that word six times. So it obviously has some very important meaning packed into it. What does John mean when he uses the term world? Well, when we look at the Gospel of John, and then at 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, we see that John likes to use this word cosmos, this word world. He uses it to refer to several different things. The first thing that we see is that he uses it oftentimes to refer to the universe at large, the cosmos, 
was created. He uses it maybe even to uh, describe life on earth. But here in this passage, he's using it to describe something a little bit more specific. It's not simply the universe or the created uh, universe that God has made, but rather it is the system of human society as it is organized under the satanic powers. He's talking about that fallen structure of humanity, the society that, that Satan rules over. That's what he's talking about when he uses the term world. So it's not simply the universe or the, uh, or the, the people living on the planet. Which immediately, if we begin to think about that, what immediately leads us to is John 3.16. John 3.16 came to mind when I was looking at this passage as well. God so loved, what? The world, that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so over and over in the New Testament, what are we told to be? Like God. We're to love like God. We're to emulate God. We're to image God. So if that's the case, why is it that we cannot love the world, but God Himself, He can love the world? But it's really important to see here is the terms that John is using in both of those passages. The passage we're looking at this morning and in John chapter 3. And there's some nuances to the words that are really important to understand. The first is this. John is using uh, the term world in John 3.16 to describe not simply the people in the world, but nature itself. That word cosmos. He's talking about all that he created. If you remember in Genesis, what did God say about that which he created? He said that it is good. So he's not referring to the system or the organization or the principalities and powers that Satan is ruling through over the human race. That's not what he's talking about in John chapter 3. He's simply talking about that which is redeemable. God loved the world. God loved the people in the world. God loved nature, that which was going to be renewed and restored. God loved this with a redeeming kind of love. The second term that we see in both of these is the word love. So the word world, now the word love. And some commentators think that the word love itself has maybe a different shade of meaning in this text. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the term love refers to that holy love of redemption. God loved the world precisely in the way that He sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. So He's sending this love into the world to change it, to redeem it. But this is not the same kind of love that John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2. John is using this word in a different way to describe this selfish, kind of self-promoting, participation kind of experience. So the first love is aimed at saving sinners, changing and redeeming the world. And the second is aimed at sharing in sinfulness. So we cannot love the world as it is being ruled by satanic powers. Because when we do that, we align ourselves with the principalities and powers that are rejecting Christ. John says we are to love God. John also says that we are to love our brothers and our sisters, but we cannot love the world. One of the helpful things that we find in this passage of Scripture is that we see that love, as the way John is describing it, is not just simply an emotional, uncontrollable emotional response. 
Which is oftentimes the way that we describe love. I fell in love. Or I, I, I love this. It's something that um, is just unable to stop. The, the love, it just drives us to do stupid things. Or we're driven by this overwhelming feeling of emotion, of love. But love is not an uncontrollable emotion that rules us. Instead, it's a steady devotion of the will. That's what love is. It's a commitment that we make. That's why when we gather here and we watch two young people come together in marriage, they're vowing to each other that they're going to love one another for the rest of their life. It doesn't matter from that day forth whether they want to or whether they feel like loving. No, it's not an emotion. Love is, as DC Talk put it, love is a verb. It's active. It's something that you do. It's a commitment that you make. It's not based on the way that you feel. It is a solemn commitment, a devoted will. It's full, active. Friends, if we are engrossed in the outlook of the world, we're engrossed in the, in the pursuits of the world which rejects Christ, then it's evident that we've misplaced our love for God. James, the Lord's brother, he mentions no words in the letter that he wrote to a church. He was talking to them about hearing the word of God and doing the word of God. He was talking to them about favoritism within the church. He talks, about, talks to them about working diligently and serving others and the damage that one can do with their tongue. But in chapter 4 of his letter, he warns them against worldliness. And James asks them some really important questions. He says, why in the world are you fighting with one another? Why are you talking bad about one another? Why are you letting your passions rule you? Why are you lying against one another? Why are you being worldly? And then he says this, you adulterous people. Do you not see that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when we live worldly, or when we, when we focus our lives on the system that is ruled by the satanic powers, what does James say that that is? He's saying we're committing adultery against our husband, our God. We're turning away from Him. We're becoming a, a friend to the world, and that means we're becoming enemies with God. Well, think about it for yourself. What, what is it that consumes your mind most of the time? Maybe this, this morning, the majority of this message, what have you been thinking about? What is it that consumes the most of your time? What, what is it that characterizes your thoughts? What, what is it that you find yourself loving today? Friends, all of us are tempted, and we're tempted in different ways. We're tempted to love the world more than we love God. And the problem is that too many of us try to simply add God to our lives. We attempt to add Jesus into our schedule. And so we show up on a Sunday morning. And that is the extent, maybe, of our Christian life. We don't really think about it throughout the week. Um, maybe we even pepper our lives with a little bit of Bible reading throughout the week. But it's, it's just... Something that happens three times a week, or maybe once a week, 
Or when we think about prayer, it's just something that maybe we do when we're at the dinner table. But it's not something that is characterizing and fusing life into our daily activities. It's just something that has been added on. And the problem is in our lives that Jesus is not the central figure. Our lives are not wrapped around His purposes, but instead we're trying to wrap Him around our purposes. And the central figure in our life is us. And this is what worldliness is. This is what living in with, with this system's view in our life, this is what this looks like. We can't simply add Jesus into our lives and expect that God is happy with that approach to life. Friends, you and I, we, we were not created to be like this. God did not call us to life so that we could simply add Jesus into the pockets of our life that we felt like needed a little bit of more growth. No. God called us to life after we died. We were to die so that now we can live. And it's not as though Jesus is coming into our life. No, we have died and now when we are raised with Him in, in God the Father, we have been raised in His life. So that now everything about our life is seen through Jesus. That's what it means to live the Christian life. But all of us were tempted to love the world. And that's why it's absolutely critical that we understand the temptations of the world. And that's where John leads us to next. Look down at verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, these are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John uses three phrases to describe the temptations of the world. And one of the clearest pictures that we have in Scripture, that we see these patterns of temptation lived out, is in Genesis 3. All of us probably remember the story. Eve finds herself in the most beautiful garden ever created on the earth. And she is there in the midst of that garden. And there in the middle of the garden stands a beautiful tree. A tree with amazing looking fruit. But she's been told not to eat from that tree. But from every other tree in the garden, she can have all that she wants. So you can almost see her there. She's standing in the center of the garden and out in front of her, these two massive, beautiful rivers are stretching out into the distance. Everything is green. Mountains are full of vegetation and flowers are smelling sweet. And there in that beautiful setting comes a snake. And he slithers up to her, this one who we know is a crafty serpent, but the one that we know also is the satanic chief of what we have now as a fallen world. And this is what he says. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of 
This tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. When we look at that passage of Scripture, it's very easy to start blaming outside influences for the sake of Eve, isn't it? We often do that with ourselves. We begin to think about our own sin. We begin to point blame at different people or different relationships or different circumstances. And oftentimes we want to jump to that conclusion that the devil made you do it. But as we look at this passage, what is the snake really doing? All he does is he begins with a question. He asks her, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, it's a foolish question, isn't it? It's a question to set up for another question, but it's a foolish question. God didn't say anything like that. But what is the response from Eve? This serpent comes to her, And he asks a question that causes doubt to rise up against the one whom she was created to worship and glorify. And what does this woman who was made in the image of God for the purpose of having dominion over all of the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and everything that creeps upon the ground. What does she do? Does she have dominion over the snake? No. She begins to listen to this reptile's lies. She becomes focused on... The world's outlook. The world's lies. So that when the snake says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of this fruit, that your eyes will be opened and you will be made like Him. What happens inside of her? That dark lust of the flesh is born in her heart. It's born in her flesh. So in the same way that James says... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, Satan didn't create the desire in Eve, did he? That's the question. Told a lie. But he didn't create the desire in her. Friends, we're, we're, like, we're like people who've been stranded in a boat out in the middle of the ocean. We're dying of thirst in a fallen world and we desire water. We desire to be uh, saved. And so that desire then leads us to take water from the ocean and pour it down our throats. And all that does is kill us. This is what the temptations of this world do for us. James says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So what we see in this text is there's there's three significant spheres or two spheres of temptation and really one outcome. The first is that interior temptation, the lust of the flesh. This is within us. And James says, this is where it all begins. Eve didn't believe that God was telling the truth. She thought that he was being deceitful, that he was keeping something from her. 
She wanted glory for herself. And so she begins to feel bitter, perhaps. Or angry because God has not been fully truthful with her. Or or frustrated or self-righteous thinking that she can do all that she needs to do. She can have dominion and she can do what she wants to do in order to be the queen of all the, the living things. So friends, temptation begins in us. All of us must battle against the temptation to be bitter people or to think more highly than we should of ourselves. We think about the people that seem to get all the breaks in life. They get the promotions. They get the best jobs. They get all of these different things happen to them and it's, it's good. And we begin to become envious of their success. We become angry and frustrated. Friends, loving the world means chasing after the same pursuits that the world chases after. And it's a world set against Christ. And it looks like giving us the desires of our heart, the feelings, the the joys that we think are so vital and important to our flesh. But notice what happens with Eve. Verse 6, it says, When she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So it happens. The temptation begins inside her, but then quickly it becomes not just the lust of the flesh, but now it is the lust of the eyes. She looked out at a tree and she saw its fruit and it was a delight to her eyes. Friends, the temptations around us, they are exterior temptations all around us. And many of the times, they look very, very good. And we can be lured away by temptations. Temptations like gathering up all of the amount of possessions that we can possibly hoard for ourselves. Temptations like like seeking after that promotion no matter what the cost. Striving and striving and working and working. All angling everything in our life so that that happens. Or maybe that forbidden relationship that you know is absolutely sin. The eyes that dart back and forth with one another and the imaginations that begin to run wild. Or maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe it's just the sense of notoriety or not fame, like you don't want to be on TV, but you want to be thought well of. You want people to respect you in your home. You want people to respect you in the church. You want people to respect you at your job. There are outside things that tempt us. The things we see with the eyes. The final phrase that John uses. Some translations say that it's the pride of life. Others say that the pride of possessions. One person said it's simply just to boast of what one has or does. And I would add to that what they perceive to have or do. For Eve, it's very simple. She, she wants to be like God, doesn't she? It was a delight to her eyes because it was going to make her wise that she would know good and evil. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to, she wanted to have 
the capability to rule over everything that she wanted to, to see. She wanted to be sovereign. She wanted to be just like him. She wanted God to step down out of his kingly role to get off of his throne. And so that she could then ascend to this throne. She wanted to be God. That's why it's not really about the fruit. It's about the rebellion. She wanted to have no limitations whatsoever on her. And friends, all of us, we are there this morning. This is a temptation for every single one of us. We want to be like God. We want to have our own dominion and glory. We want to have dominion and we want our own glory. And we don't want to have to give God His glory. We seek out after dominion and glory not so that we can honor Him in our flesh. Not so that the nations would know Him, but friends, we want the glory for ourselves. We want sovereignty. And this temptation is something that plagues all of us. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, you know what? I, I don't want glory. I don't want to be sovereign. But the way that it works itself out in our lives in a very practical way is whether or not you have to have control. Does it really bother you when something happens and it's outside your control? Or whether people make choices that are choices that you wouldn't make and you find yourself getting very stirred up about those choices that they've made. We want sovereignty. We want control. We, 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 we want to accumulate stuff around us so that we can have ownership rights, so that we can have possessions, so that things can be there when we need them to be there. We want to have leverage over people. And this puffs us up with pride. Friends, when we become so engrossed with the pursuit of this world, and when we fall prey to the temptations from within and from without, it's evident that we've misplaced our love for God. And the only way to beat temptation is to love. The only way that we can beat temptation is to love God. And to matter to many times what happens is we see the temptations from without and we refrain. And we, we understand the temptations from within and so we deny self. And so we, we put up these barriers in front of us so that it keeps those temptations at bay. But it's kind of like if, you, uh, if you've ever been on a diet or, or ever fasted for an extended period of time and, and maybe you've just not eaten and you, you've found that you become very, very hungry. And what happens typically? Well, it's the first thing you find, right? So you're really hungry after a long day, maybe you miss breakfast and lunch, you get home and then for me, it's that bag of Cheetos that's sitting there. And it's just like, I know that's not good for me, but I'm going to eat the entire bag. Right? That's what happens with us. When we refrain from the temptations, we become hungry for something. But the only one who can give us true nourishment is God. So if we refrain and refrain and refrain, and we will fall to temptation eventually, if we do not feast on God Himself. If we do not love Him. So what we have to do is to direct our love to God. 
Now, how do we do that? Well, I think this is some very simple ways that we can do that. Three of them. Temptation begins inside of us. The lust of the flesh. So in order to combat those feelings of self-centeredness, whether it's self-loathing or self-worship or idolization, we must worship God instead. We must worship God. God is the one who has made everything. He is the one who has unsurpassed value. And so all of our energy should be focused upon Him and not ourselves. So friends, I don't know where you're at today, but whether you're self-loathing and depressed, you find yourself in a hole and you find yourself becoming very, very introspective and and self-centered, looking at your own mistakes and your own problems. Friends, what happened when David was in a similar situation? David was tempted to despair and he got to that low point and he reminded himself of who God was. He said, you are the one who formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't make mistakes. So when you find yourself falling in on yourself, looking at yourself, self-loathing and depressed, know God doesn't make mistakes. And worship Him for what He has done. Or maybe you fall into the temptation of pride and arrogance like King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the story? He fell to his own pride as he was walking out on the terraces on his own palace. He began to think very highly of himself and God struck him and made him like a wild beast. And for seven years he walked around on all fours eating grass. But then he comes to his senses and this is what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just and those who walk in pride He will humble. So the first thing we have to do is stop focusing on ourselves if we're going to be temptation. We have to focus on God. We have to worship Him. But we must also live by faith and not by sight. What was the second temptation? Lust of the eyes. When we live by sight, we will fall to those things to which we see. But we must live by faith and not by sight. It's very easy for us to fall prey to the lust of the eyes, but but God has promised us so much more. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we lust after things that have not been given to us, what we're saying is, God, you have not given us all of the good things that are due us. I believe you're, you're, you're being deceitful with me. I believe you're holding out on me. Friends, we must be living by faith and not by sight. Trusting that God is good and that God will take care of us. And that God is the one who will make us happiest. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation Or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. We must live by faith and not by sight. 
And then finally, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Friends, don't try to live for your own dominion. Don't try to live for your own glory. Don't try to have your own control. But give the control over to the one who can handle it. Give the glory to God. Live for Him. Trust in His sovereignty and humble yourself under His mighty hand. The temptations are all around us and they're all within us. But friends, do not love the world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Let's pray.